want to wrap up a series we've been working on for the last four weeks uh, today, simply called The Excruciating Life of the Christian. Now, that doesn't sound like a very attractive name for a series, but it is the reality that every Christian is born from an excruciating birth. Now, not just talking about physical birth, talking about uh, the word itself, excruciating, means out of the cross. The, the Christian's life is born out of the cross. It's because of the cross that you and I have opportunity for salvation. But God's full plan of salvation didn't end at the cross. It didn't end at the resurrection. In fact, that's what really the whole series has been about, is looking at God's full plan of redemption, the full benefits of salvation through the eyes of God. And we've discovered that there's four necessary components to God's full plan of redemption. And I just want to review those really quickly with you here this morning, and if I can bring it up. First of all, there's the cross. We, we started on what we call Easter Sunday, and we talked about how Easter is not a term anywhere in the Bible. It's something that was adopted in about 300 A.D. Really, the biblical term for Easter would be first fruits. It's because Jesus was our first fruits, and, and Jesus um, was, was crucified on Passover. Jesus was crucified on Passover. He was our Passover lamb. That's why we even call Jesus the Lamb of God, and that is what Easter, or, or uh, excuse me, Good Friday is all about, if I can get my holidays straight. Then we get to Easter. Easter is first fruits. We celebrate the resurrection. And oftentimes, I think that when people think about God's redemption, when they think about God's plan of salvation, they tend to really think about the cross and the resurrection. And, and those are true components. Those are necessary components. But God's plan and God's purpose in salvation extended well beyond just the cross and the resurrection. It went into something that happened 40 days later, and that's the ascension of Jesus. Jesus needed to ascend. He needed to suffer this horrible, horrible, excruciating death on the cross because God's perfect justice needed to be quenched it's, I think sometimes people mistakenly, incorrectly, and just innocently make the mistake of saying, you know, God's, God did not give us justice, He gave us love. Well, that's true, but God's justice needed to be quenched, and that's why Jesus had to die such a horrible death on the cross. And then God was appeased by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, and so by the power of God, God showed His approval upon Jesus' sacrifice, and that's why we have the resurrection. And Jesus needed to be exalted and needed to be lifted up so that you and I could receive the full benefit of salvation so that Jesus could now be an intercessor between us and God. Uh, according to Hebrews chapter 5, Jesus is our high priest. That's why here on earth, we don't any longer need priests because Jesus is now our high priest and he's the one who intercedes on our behalf to God the Father. And that's what happened at the ascension. At the ascension, Jesus went up into heaven and right now at this very moment, he's at the right hand of God the Father in heaven and he's interceding on our behalf. Interceding on our behalf, how? Well, we, we read in the book of Revelation that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Right now, Satan, when you and I sin, he's actually accusing us and saying to God the Father, see, see how horrible they are. And that's when Jesus, our high priest, says, but remember, they've been covered by my pure 
blood. They've been, they've been purchased back. They've been redeemed by my blood. And so Jesus is interceding on our behalf as a result of the ascension. And then something happened that we talked about last week. Ten days after that, there was a festival that finished the Feast of Weeks. It was really a harvest festival. And for us, we think of harvest festivals in the fall. There's a harvest festival in the spring in Israel, and it ends the Feast of Weeks, and it's what we call Pentecost. Pentecost had taken place for thousands of years, but then in Acts chapter 2, something really special happens. Jesus sends what he had promised that he would send. Remember, he said, as we talked last week in John chapter 16, that he's not going to leave us as orphans. He's not going to leave us abandoned. He didn't ascend up into heaven and then say, whoop, you guys are on your own. Ten days later, on the festival of Pentecost, he sends the Holy Spirit, which we read into the scriptures that is our comforter. He is our deposit. He is the sign and the seal that we were purchased and we're marked for God. That's what happened on Pentecost. That was God's full plan of salvation. Now listen, if you take any four of those components or any one of those four components out, you you remove one just even by accident and you don't have God's full redemptive plan. You see, we needed the cross, we needed the resurrection, we definitely needed the ascension so that Jesus can now intercede for us, and we needed Pentecost so that we could be recipients of the Holy Spirit, and so that the Holy Spirit would continue to minister to us. God hasn't left us. God's, for Christian, God is in us. God is is inside of us because he's made us new, according to 2 Corinthians 5, 17, that we are now new creations. The old is gone and the new has come. And we have received the benefit and the pleasure of the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us for those of us who are Christ followers. So here's the question then that it really begs out of all these things. Hopefully you've learned a few things just about the Bible. Hopefully, you've learned a few things if you've been here for the series just about God's full redemptive plan. But here comes the question that all of us ask, to be quite honest. We say, so what? I I mean, I get it. We need the cross. We need the resurrection. we, We need the ascension. We need Pentecost. So where does that leave us now? And so that's really what we want to discuss today. So what now? We know this information. Where does that leave us? Now that we have all this information, I hope, by the way, that you learn to treasure this information. I hope that this information sticks with you as you know God's plan of salvation for you, what it cost him, what the experience looked like. But what are we left to do? God did all this miraculous stuff, so where does that leave us? I guess what I'm asking is, are we to simply say to God, oh, thank you so much, and then move on? Are we to kind of tip our hat to God and say, props to you, boy, you did an amazing job with that, and then move on and say, boy, you're pretty crafty, you're pretty cunning, that's a pretty neat plan that you've worked up? Or are we to change how we live and how we behave in light of the actions? And that last question really is the motivator for what we need to talk about today. Are we to change how we live and how we behave in light of what God has done? So what now? The answer really begins with this. What you do 
in response to what you know, specifically what you've hopefully learned if you've been here throughout the, the series about God's redemptive plan, the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, and Pentecost, what you do with that depends on what you're made of. Depends on what you're made of. Now, what, what do I mean by that? You, you cannot... You cannot respond to these truths if you only possess the intellectual knowledge of what God did. Do you hear that? You cannot respond. Your life won't change. Your life cannot change. Your life will not change if you only intellectually acknowledge what God did. That He did the cross, that He did the resurrection, that He did the ascension, and that He did Pentecost. If... if this information stays here and doesn't go anywhere else, you can't respond to this information. You can't change. You cannot respond to God because of your, your own self-willed efforts. You can't respond to God on your own. Specifically, you can only respond to God if the work of the, or if the Holy Spirit is at work in you and in your life. You see, this information, this stuff that we've, that we've presented here, it, it will mean zero. And by the word mean, it will change your life this much, zero, nothing, if God the Holy Spirit is not at work in your life. We need, we need God the Holy Spirit at work in our life in order for us to respond to God's word. In order for us to respond to God's message. In order for us to respond to, to what God did. The cross, the resurrection, the essential, the arrival of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, they're all foolishness to those who don't yet believe. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't compute. It doesn't register. It's like information that's there and just doesn't go anywhere. If God the Holy Spirit is not already at work in your life. And the truth of the matter that the scriptures reveal that Jesus preached, that the apostles preached, the early church fathers preached, is a carnal mind cannot comprehend the mysteries of God. What do you mean by a carnal mind, Brad? I mean a mind that's unregenerate, and we'll talk about that word today. I mean, I mean a mind that isn't being changed and renewed and being refreshed by the Spirit of God. Do you get it? The Spirit of God needs to be at work in you. If the Spirit of God is not at work in you, change won't happen. No matter how much you try, no matter how much you want to change, it won't happen because the power of God doesn't live in you unless you have the Holy Spirit. We need the power of God, the resurrected power of God to, to change us and to make us new so that we will follow then in Jesus' footsteps when he was the first fruits and then we follow in his steps. A carnal mind cannot comprehend the mysteries of God. A carnal mind is not motivated to move on knowledge. Do you remember when, when Jesus was rebuking the Pharisees for that they were for the way that they were testing him and trying him, um, he, he said, you're in error because you don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. Do, do you remember that whole passage? They were, they were testing him. 
about issues of, of marriage and, and at the time of the resurrection, what, he, what was happening is that there was this gal who um, she would marry a guy and the guy died and according to Jewish law, Mosaic law, what would end up having to happen is this guy's brother would have to marry uh, his brother's widow. And so they went down through this and they said seven times this happened. This, this guy would marry her and then, she would, and then he would die and then the brother would marry her and then he would die and then the brother would marry her, and then he would die and then the brother would marry her, and then he would die. And, and they say, so what's the lesson in that? And I'm thinking, don't marry her. The reality of it is, is what they were trying to do is they were trying to test they were trying to test Jesus and they were trying to entrap him. And he says, listen, you guys don't get it. You're in error because you don't know the scriptures for one and you don't know the power of God. You know what he's telling them? You know what he's telling the Pharisees? You're not saved. You don't get this stuff. And until you get this stuff, you won't understand who God is. And you won't understand who God is until he gets a hold of your life. In other words, you don't, know that the Bible, you don't know the Bible to begin with, and even if you did know the Bible, because you still don't have the power of God living in you, specifically the Holy Spirit, you can't personally understand this stuff. You see, what, what this is really revealing is that you can know the Bible. There's people who know the Bible, and I, I was amazed, um, continue to be amazed, um, we had encountered some neat people in Israel. And over in Israel, uh, it, it's amazing to see how the Jewish people just know the scriptures. I mean, it surrounds them. And there's almost at times I was like, oh man, you put me to shame with the knowledge that you have. But yet, they weren't converted. They didn't get who Jesus was. And so they can't get the gospel because they don't get who Jesus was. They don't get the power of the scriptures because even though that they know the scriptures up here, there's nothing in here that helps them to truly understand the scriptures. And we have people that you and I have perhaps encountered that know the scriptures, but they don't know the power of God. And the truth of the matter is, is only, and I'm going to throw a term out here, a regenerate person can begin to understand the redemptive power of God and what it demands. What I'm getting at here is the so now what question can only be answered by believers. The so now what do we do? So now what happens can only be effectively answered by people who pursue Jesus according to the scriptures with their whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. We, wanna, we want God because God's in us and so we crave more of God. This word regenerate basically simply means, to use it in more modern terms, that we were once dead in our sins and transgresses, right, according to the scriptures, and now we're made alive. We've been made new, according to 2 Corinthians 5.17. That's what happens when somebody is truly, we use this word in the church called converted. 
why do we use this word converted? Because it, it almost makes you think about um, like the converters that you plug into the, the wall, right? It converts electricity. It changes it, right? It changes the wavelength and the frequency of the electricity so that you won't burn up your appliance that you're plugging into. That's exactly what it means within the scriptures is that it, it changes us. God changes us. Not that we change of our own self-will. God makes us new. And only a person who's truly been changed by the power of God can get this scriptures. How can we truly get it? Because the Holy Spirit is given to us because of Pentecost. Only a regenerate person can begin to understand this redemptive power because they're the only ones who've experienced it. And the redemption that uh, and the redemption demands change. So let me explain this truth to you from the scriptures. If you have your Bible with you, um, 1 Corinthians chapter 18, by the way, that's in your New Testament. It goes uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, right? And then you get into the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 18, or chapter 1, I'm sorry, excuse me, chapter 1 beginning in verse 18, verses 18 to 31. This is how it reads out of the English Standard Version, if that's what's up on the screen. If you don't have your Bible with you, I have it up on the screen. If you do have your Bible with you, let me encourage you just to be in your own Bible. There's something about being in your own Bible that's really, really meaningful. Verse 18 of chapter 1. For the word of the cross, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. What's that mean? The word of the cross, the, the message of the cross means nothing to those who don't get Christianity, to those who are dying, to those are, who are going to hell, to the unregenerate person. The cross means nothing. It's foolishness. Because, but to us who are being saved, the regenerate, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. Verse 20, where is the one who's wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Verse 22, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, is the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Do you hear that? so that no human being might boast in the presence 
of God. What does that mean? It means that your salvation is a free gift and God did everything to establish that salvation and he even called you to himself. We didn't love God first. God loved us first and then we respond and then we love God. And God calls us and woos us and draws us to himself. God is the action in all of this. And, and the result of him being the action, no man can stand before God and say, see, see how good I am, see how I responded to how much you love me, see all of this stuff that I did. God does all this miraculous stuff so that no one can boast in his sight. Verse 30, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom of God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. What does all of this mean? Like, I want to unpack, there's so much here just to unpack, but I can only, because of time, unpack a little part of it. That power of God that is revealed to and experienced by regenerate believers changes us. You see what happens when God calls us and God regenerates us, that means he redeems us, he purchases us back. What does God do according to this in verse 30? He makes us righteous. He sanctifies us. He does all these things and it's glorious in his sight and it's all for his greater glory. And what happens is God is the active agent in changing us. Only the person who truly desires God and has God in them will be changed. You're saying, well, wait a second. This is just a little confusing here. What do you mean God in us? You see, God is one God, three persons. This is the, the mystery and the beauty and, and, and the magnificent glory of the Trinity. You have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And by the way, some people will say, well, you can't see them all at the same time in the Scriptures. That's not true because that happens several times in the Scriptures. God the Trinity is revealed in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's just not a New Testament concept. The Trinity is from Genesis to Revelation. And the gift that Jesus left us is the comforter. Remember, he said in John chapter 16, I'm going to go away, that's the ascension, but I'm going to send my comforter, the Holy Spirit, back to you. God hasn't left us. Have you ever had one of these moments in life to where you're just like, the stuff that I'm facing right now, I just wish that God would directly tell me what he wants me to do. Here's the answer. God is in you through the power of the Holy Spirit. God speaks to us through his holy and sacred word. And the power of the Holy Spirit helps us to understand what the Bible says to us. So listen, God sp speaks to us all the time. How do you know that God is real? I talked to him today. And he talked to me. How did he talk to you? Did you hear his voice and did you kind of see the clouds part and did you hear like angels? No, that's not how God talks. 
God talks to us because we have his living word, right? We, we even say, we say these confessions all the time, but I'm afraid that we don't realize the significance of them. God's word is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword, able to pierce us down to bone and marrow, right down to the quick of who we are. That's the power and the authority of God's word. So when we want God to speak to us, what do we do? We go to his word. We pray and we seek, and God, the Holy Spirit, speaks to us. And by the way, according to what Jesus taught us, the Holy Spirit doesn't speak on his own authority. He can only speak to us what God the Father has already declared. So he's not just kind of winging it out there on his own. God the Trinity is in complete and universal harmony and agreement. The so what now is that we change. Why do we change? Because God changes us. If we truly are seeking after Christ, there's, there's almost a level to where you can't help but be changed because God is the active agent in changing you. Let me kind of make this a little bit different and rephrase this. For those of us whom God has revealed himself, we're obligated to respond to God. Listen, and in that obligation, there's no weight and there's no burden. You know, there's certain things in life that we have obligations for, and it's almost like, you know, it's like the, um, uh, what's the Dunkin' Donut commercial? Time to make the donuts. Like, there's that sense of obligation that we have to do this. But when God is in us, God changes us, and that's an obligation to change, but there's no weight, and there's almost, to some degree, no work to the change. Because uh, we're not obligated to change because of moral obligations, but because we have a family connection to him. Let me kind of put it, especially Mother's Day, a little bit fitting, in family terms. As Christians, we have been grafted in, according to Romans 11, to the family of God. We've been grafted in, and we're now a part. We've been adopted as sons and daughters of the living God of this universe, who always was, who is, and is to come. That's the family that you and I are a part of. We've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. We've been sealed with the mark of the Holy Spirit, making us adopted into the family of God. And family blood runs thick, doesn't it? Think about this for a second. Family blood runs thick. Doesn't it run thick in your family? What do I mean by that? It's almost like no matter what someone goes through, when they're family, you stick with them. Why? Not because you have a moral obligation to that, but because you have a connection that's much deeper. You have a connection that's family. You may not always agree, with family. You may not always get along with family. You may have those times to where you want to give the left foot of fellowship to family. You, you may have times to where you have really, really tense moments with family, but they're family. Right? It's family, and still in the midst of that, you stick it through. Why? Family. 
blood runs thick. We even stick by them when their choices pain us. When their choices are, are just, we know that they're wrong and they know better. We still somehow stick by them, don't we? Why? Because they're family. And that's the motivating factor behind that. What is the motivating factor behind this, this deep familial connection? Can you guess what it is? At the end of the day, it's, it's not because you're always liked. My wife loves me at times in spite of me. She chooses to, what, what is the motivating factor to someone's deep loyalty? You know the answer. It's love. Right? At the end of the day, there is this degree of this unseen matter, this unseen connection that you really can't tangibly describe. And so we use this word and we, we, we describe that connection. We say it's love. It's deep. And, and its roots go way down. So that almost no matter what someone seems to go through, you still love them. You still care for them. You still reach out to them. You, you still, even in the midst of it, you're, you're like, you know what? I'm sticking by you in this tough time. And that's fascinating because love reveals itself at some of the most challenging times, right? Here's how love reveals itself at times. <clears throat> You and I have seen some remarkable people go through crazy trials and crazy pain, and, and pain that you wouldn't wish on anyone. Have you seen couples that have gone through cancer together? I, there are some remarkable couples that are connected with this congregation, a part of this congregation, that I stand back and I look at the suffering and the problem, the physical problems that they have, uh, and, and sometimes the, even the other challenges that are compounding all of those things and the pressures of life, and you just say, how do they make it through? You know what the simple answer is, but the real answer? It's that deep love, isn't it? It is that deep love that when a, when a husband and a wife or when a man and a woman, they stand before the altar of God and they say, for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, in sickness and health, right? Till death do us part. They're making a covenant to each other and before God. And when you see that lived out and sometimes uh, in early years of life and sometimes in later years of life, boy, it's extravagant. And what a picture of how much God loves us. That's why, by the way, that marriage is the only illustration given in the scriptures to reveal the deep love of, that God has for us, is this marriage love. Because it isn't, I'll stick with you as long as you stick by me. It is, I'm gonna stick with you no matter what. I, I've, I've made that commitment. And what happens with us spiritually is when God makes us one, when we become one with God, in respect to now, we're in the family. We've been adopted in. We've been given the sign and the seal of the Holy Spirit. God sticks by us. Have you ever had these moments? I've had these moments in life where you're like, I don't know why God still loves me. I am such a jerk. You know why God still loves me? I'm his child. 
He said, listen, you're adopted in. I've purchased you through the blood of Jesus. You're mine. No one can pull you out of my hands. That's this beautiful thing of love. We love like this because we're family. Why doesn't God abandon his children even when they disobey? Why doesn't God abandon his children when we're unruly? Why doesn't God abandon his children when we make choices and when we know better and we do the things that we don't want to do and don't do the things that we know that we ought to do as the Apostle Paul wrestled with in scriptures? Because we're family. And what's the motivating factor behind all of that? His great love. That's the, that's the motivating factor behind this plan of redemption, God's great love and His great glory. You see, His plan of redemption demonstrates His great love, and it also draws great glory to Him. So if you've been called by, by God to be a part of His family, the so now what question is answered by what you're made of. That's why I said earlier, what you do in response to all this stuff depends on what you're made of. What it really depends on is if you're a child of God. Because if you're a child of God, you're made of different stuff than the world. You have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you who empowers you, the power of God to change you. Our capacity to love is contingent upon what we're made of. So here's the question. Have you been reborn by the power of God? Does all this stuff lead to change for your life? 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This old worldly stuff, it's gone. And it's been replaced by the life and the power of God in us. This new love that's placed in us motivates us to do all kinds of really strange things, if you think about it. Love motivates people to do strange things. Have you ever thought about that? You know, uh, in the early dating years and when you're, um, to use a Bambi term, Twitter-pated. Do you guys remember that word from Bambi? Twitter-pated. You're this, this beautiful, beautiful woman can say to you, Honey, go chew the bark off of that tree. And the guy will say, okay. <laughs> Love motivates us to do really strange things. Right? Here, let me give you an example. Love motivates us to forgive. Love motivates us to, to live humbly. Love motivates us in our relationship with God to obey God. Why do we obey him? Because we love him. The new love creates a desire in us to know and to experience God. Just the fact that now we're a child of God, we desire to know so much more about our heavenly father and so much more of what it means to follow him. This new love motivates us to put away the things that displease God and adopt the things that please God. This new love motivates us to serve rather than to be served. This new love motivates us to turn the other cheek even when people insult us and say all kinds of things wrongly against us. This new love conquers anger, it conquers lust, it conquers hatred, it conquers all the sins of the flesh. 
That's what the new love of God does in us. The new love of God renews us and it gives us a life. The new love of God makes us even want to share this love of God with others. It, it gives us something in, inside of us that we just, we want to share this love that God has given us. It's almost like it, it overflows to where we just feel like we've got to give it away because we have this new love and this new capacity to care for people. And that's all done by the power of the Holy Spirit working on us as Christians. By the way, that's where we're going for our next series here in two weeks. Next week is uh, graduation Sunday. <clears throat> in two weeks, we're going we're gonna to ask a question that really stems out of all this stuff, so now what? We talked about the, the cross and the resurrection, the ascension, and we also talked about um, uh, the Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. We talked today about so now what? And then I want to talk about if we truly have been changed by God, then we want to share this with others. We have to share what is called the gospel. But here's the thing is I'm afraid that many Christians cannot tell you what the gospel truly is. That's, that's why the gospel isn't being shared. It's because people honestly don't know what the gospel is. They can't articulate it themselves, so you can't share what you don't know. So we're going to take time to define and to answer the question, what is the gospel? So before we get there, though, let me give you a couple take-homes. Without the events of the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, Pentecost, listen, there would be no gospel. The gospel seems a natural continuation of what we've been talking about. You need to know the gospel, brothers and sisters. If you can't share the gospel, I, I would venture to say, you probably don't even know what your own salvation is made of. The gospel is just what God has already done in us, and we get to share it with others. But without the cross, without the resurrection, without the ascension, without Pentecost, there is no gospel to share. Next, because of the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, and Pentecost, you and I have the full benefits of redemption. You and I have the full benefits of redemption. You see, not only did God save us from our sins, but then He gave us Himself as a deposit through the power of the Holy Spirit so that you and I could begin to just, just have our appetites whetted for what we're going to experience for all of eternity in the very presence of, of God Himself. Just magnificent to think about. And we experience the full benefits of redemption because of these four events that we've talked about. Lastly, here's my last thing. Because of God's deep love. Because He first loved us, you and I now have the ability to do what? To love. In the redeemed people of God, love. Yeah, there's a, a, a song, an old hymn I remember gr from growing up. Um, 
Snuff, do you remember? They'll know that we're Christians by our love. And they'll know. Do you guys remember that song? The defining mark of the redeemed people of God is love. Not that we work at this love. It's that that when we begin to realize God's magnificent and amazing love for us, it becomes a natural extension to love others. The redeemed people of God love. Now listen, that doesn't mean that there's times that we have to learn how to grow in that love. But we love because we were first loved by God's extravagant love. Listen, I want, to, I want to take a minute and I want to invite the worship team to come up. 